I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Continuing our study through this second epistle that Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy. We come this morning to chapter 2, the first seven verses. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. If you're a Christian who is committed to and deeply involved in the ministries of the church at some level, in some way, then I'm sure that you've had to time to time deal with something we call ministry burnout. Becoming weary and discouraged in the work. Did you know that there is an example of ministry burnout in scripture that we can look to? It's in the Old Testament. It's in the life of the prophet Elijah. And something that's Somewhat odd at first to realize his dark period of his life, this burnout period of his life, came after probably what was his greatest success in ministry. To put it in context, the evil King Ahab and his even more evil wife, the Queen Jezebel, had made Israel, led Israel to become a Baal-worshipping nation, worshipping a false god. And as a result of that, God had sent a time of drought and famine upon the land. And so Elijah comes to King Ahab and he challenges him to choose who will be his God. He challenges him to bring the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, 850 of them altogether, to come to the top of Mount Carmel and have a challenge with the God of Israel, the true God of Israel, Yahweh. They come there to pray to their gods to see who can end the drought and who can end the famine. And so Elijah gives the false prophets first chance at it. They pray for hours on end. They shout, they dance, they cut themselves, make themselves bleed to show their devotion to their gods. But no answer comes. Elijah stands off on the sideline and says to them, shouts at them, shout louder, maybe Baal is in the bathroom, or maybe he's on vacation, or maybe he's asleep. And after they had spent themselves, Elijah walks over to the altar of the Lord, it says, and rebuilds it. It had fallen into disrepair. He rebuilds the altar of the Lord, he puts the appropriate animal sacrifice on it, according to the word of God, and then he doused it with four large jars of water, and then he repeated that three times. 
12 jars of water, large jars of water, totally immersing this altar. And then Elijah prayed simply, called upon the God, the true God of Israel, Yahweh, and asked him to respond. And you know the story. Fire comes from heaven. Says in the text that the fire not only consumed the, the sacrifice on the altar, but it consumed the altar itself. And the people fell on their faces and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And eventually the rain started and the false prophets were executed and purged from Israel. That was, in ministry terms, what we call a championship moment. Elijah was at the height of his ministry, at the height of his effectiveness, he must have felt. But if you keep reading, you find out that his dark part periods began immediately. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel issued a decree that he be assassinated, so Elijah runs for his life. He runs into the wilderness. And there, after he was in the wilderness for a while, he sits down under a broom tree, it says, and he asked the Lord to take his life. He said, it's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. The Lord didn't take his life. Instead, he sent angels to give him food and to help him rest. Later, Elijah was hiding in a cave, and the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah again says, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. That is what you call ministry burnout. Discouraged, tired, weary, seeing no effect to his ministry. And the Lord says to Elijah, get back to work, Elijah. I have 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed a knee to Baal. Go, take the word of God to my people. My purposes will not be thwarted. If you're a Christian, you are on a mission from God. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that very simple fact. You are here on a mission from the one two, true creator and redeemer. And the best among us will get discouraged at times. We will struggle with doubt. We're going to feel like our lives are not making any difference in the world. There's still just as much sin and evil and false belief and unbelief within ourselves and in the people around us as there ever was before. What am I doing here? Lord, take my life. That's what it feels like. That's what burnout feels like. I think sometimes we talk about burnout in the church, and, I, and maybe it's something that we leaders talk about more than, than people who aren't le have leadership position in the church. But anybody who's involved in ministry can experience this. And I, the way we talk about it, we talk about it like it's just we have too much to do. Why, why do we feel burned out? Well, we just have too much on our plate. Our schedules are maxed out. But burnout is not just being too busy. And burnout is not just being tired, weary. Burnout is being discouraged. It's, yes, it's being too busy. Yes, it's being tired. 
But most importantly, it's being discouraged like the prophet Elijah was. It's feeling like you're being ineffective. Sometimes you don't even understand why you feel this way, but you feel like you're not accomplishing what you've been placed here to do. You lose your sense of purpose. As we've been studying First and Second Timothy, we've been getting the sense that Timothy was experiencing some level of burnout in his own ministry. Paul continually is encouraging him to get back to what he was called to do, giving him hope, giving him, pointing him to Christ and pointing him to grace to be restored in ministry. And we've learned that Timothy was a very timid man. He had a shy disposition. He had to fight that within himself to do ministry. He had health issues that he struggled with. He was facing persecution from forces outside the church. And we know that one of the biggest issues that Paul has been dealing with again and again is that Timothy had heretics in his own church. He had false teachers in his own church. You can easily see why Timothy would become discouraged. And then in verse 15, if you look um, at verse 15 of uh, chapter 1, the passage we looked at last week, you'll see he refers to something that probably was very discouraging to Timothy. He says that there was a significant falling away of professing believers. He says, you are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me. Now, he's talking about Asia Minor there, which is t Turkey today, that area we call Turkey. And the capital of Asia was Ephesus. And the pastor of the church in Ephesus was Timothy. And he knows that Timothy is aware of some falling away of believers from the gospel that Paul preached. And so this is a discouraging time for Timothy. Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to encourage Timothy in his faith, and restore him energetically to ministry. And maybe that's something that many of you this morning are feeling the need of yourselves. The Holy Spirit's purpose in giving us this letter to Timothy is to encourage us and to restore us to energetic ministry in the name of the Lord. That, being, that means being refocused upon our mission. Why are we here? That's what we do on the Lord's Day morning. That's why we come together, is to be recommissioned. I think we should come with that expectation every Lord's Day, that when we gather for worship and we sit under the teaching of the word and we celebrate the gospel together, that we are coming to be recommissioned, to be sent out anew, to be sent out again, to be reminded of what we're doing and why we're doing it and who we're doing it for. And that's what Paul's doing here. And so here he defines the mission for, Paul, for Timothy again. He states it clearly in verse 2. He says to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Now, what's he referring to? What, what did Timothy hear in the presence of many witnesses over and over again? This was the public teaching and preaching of the Apostle Paul. As Paul took the Old Testament scriptures and took the revelation that Jesus Christ had given him and preached the word of God, and taught the word of God in many different settings. Timothy was with him in many different cities and had witnessed, along with many others, what God had given to the church through the Apostle Paul. This is not secret knowledge. This is not some Gnostic secret knowledge given in, behind closed doors. This was the public teaching and preaching ministry of Paul. Timothy had been well-trained in the scriptures. 
and well-trained in the doctrines of the gospel. This is the good deposit that Paul keeps referring to. Timothy had been given the good deposit, which Paul himself had received from Christ. Let me remind you from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, where Paul talks about the time when he received the deposit of God's revelation directly from Christ. He says in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, just imagine for a moment that God were to, in some visible manifestation, appear in your bedroom at the beginning of a day and say, I have a message for you to take to the world. How exciting would that be? That God gave you truth that you are to take out and tell the world something directly from God himself. That's what happened to Paul. And that exact same message is what Paul has now transmitted to Timothy. That deposit, that good deposit of the revelation of truth is in the hands of Timothy. What a privilege we have. We've been given God's word. We've been given absolute truth. This word is God's word to all mankind. And it's been placed in our hands. And we've been given the, the awesome privilege and the mission to communicate it to others. That's why we're here. This is the power of God to salvation. Do not take the privilege of handling it and passing it on lightly. Paul mentions four generations of leaders in the Ephesians church here. First of all, himself. Paul was the one who planted the church. He was the first one to bring the gospel to Ephesus. And now he says, now as Paul is finishing the race, he's passing the baton, he's placing the good deposit of, of the word of God in Timothy's hands, and he's, he says, now take it and teach it to others. Share this message with those who are able and have faith to hear it and equip them so that they can teach others. That's four generations, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to those who Timothy teaches, and then the others that are taught by those that Timothy teaches. This is how the gospel spreads. This is how God continues his work of redemption until Christ comes again. This is what we call true apostolic succession. If you know anything about the history of the church, you know that that's been an argument. How does authority pass from the time of the apostles? Christ gave authority, the keys to the kingdom, to the apostles. How does that authority get passed down from the apostles to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation, all the way until this generation? How does authority get passed down? Some churches, some Christians believe that it's passed down personally. That, that Peter was given the ultimate authority and that, that he passed that authority down to the next bishop and the next bishop passed that authority down to the next bishop. That it's passed from person to person. That's not biblical apostolic succession. Paul is describing here what apostolic succession looks like. It's faithful ministers of the word of God passing on, and your ministers are just as much as I'm ministers in this sense, passing on the word of God to the next generation. Authority is passed down by the apostolic doctrines, the teachings, the good deposit. That's the authority in the church. And to the degree to which any authority in the church departs from the revealed word of God, it loses authority from God. Paul is restating for Timothy's benefit 
What Jesus gave is the original great commission for all believers and for the church as a whole. This is what Christ said to his disciples. All authority in heaven and earth that has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Paul is saying to Timothy, this is the great commission. This is your, the focus of your life. And I'm saying that to you this morning. Yes, it's true of ministers, it's true of elders, it's true of every believer. We've all been given this commission to go and make disciples of other people, to teach them everything that the Lord has taught us. That's our mission. That's why we're here. In case you've forgotten why you're here. They talk about in organizations, like it starts actually, I think this phrase all started in the military, but then it transferred over to businesses and then nonprofit organizations. They talk about mission creep. Do you know what mission creep is? It's when, and it often happens as a result of success in your business or success in, in your organization, but as a result of that, you start to lose focus and you start to get off track of where you were actually originally headed. You had a sense of mission, you, you had a sense of what you were supposed to do, but as, especially as success distracts you, you start to get off track. And it feels to me, as I look at the church, especially in America, we have experienced a significant mission creep in the last few generations. We've lost sight of why we're here. We've lost our focus on the Great Commission. It's easy for churches to begin to, to focus more on increasing attendance and developing programs and doing outreaches and getting caught up in political movements and social awareness movements. And all those things can be good things. But that's not the mission. The mission is to make disciples and to teach the next generation who Christ is, what he's done for us, and what he would have us do and how he'd have us live. It's easy for individual Christians to have mission creep in your own life and to lose sight of why you're here, what you're here to do, and you get caught up in your career goals or your family goals or your monetary goals, your, your retirement packages, whatever you're caught up in, and you've experienced mission creep. You've forgotten that you're here to make disciples, no matter what you're calling. And I understand that we as disciples are called to do it differently. You're not going to make disciples the same way I am. We're all called to do this in different ways, but the mission is the same. So having restated the mission, then Paul illustrates it with three very common jobs that anybody in the first century would have been very familiar with. He, and he uses these as metaphors, and he asks us to contemplate it. And I'm fascinated by how he really doesn't elaborate here. He does elsewhere in some places, but here he doesn't really elaborate on the metaphor. He kind of gives it quickly, and then he says, meditate on this. And I think that's a Paul, way of Paul teaching, saying, think about how does this apply to your life? And the first metaphor he gives, the first job he talks about, he says, we need a soldier's view of our life in this world. He says in verse 3, share in suffering, or some translations have endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Is that part of your self-identity? We're all caught up in our, what our own identity is these days. You know, how do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself as a soldier of Christ Jesus? If you do, it's going to affect how you live your life every day. Soldiers don't expect to live a life of comfort and ease and safety without risks. 
Soldiers don't expect that. When you sign up for the military, you don't expect a cushy life. God's word shows us over and over again that we are in a spiritual battle. We are fighting battles in a spiritual war that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And especially, and if you've ever, I really commend to you, even if you don't, never really have studied the theology behind the book of Revelation, read the book of Revelation. If you don't understand what all the imagery is, just stay focused on the main point. And I'll tell you what the main point is, is that we're at war. That there are spiritual forces against us that are powerful, and yet we serve the one who has the victory, King Jesus. He is risen, and he is accomplishing the purpose of his kingdom, and he's doing it through his church. That is the war that we are in, the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. We're in it every day. And some of us have the privilege of serving the Lord and fighting the good fight that Paul talks about again and again to Timothy. We do that in a context like state college, where it's physically safe and physically comfortable for us, by the world standards anyway. And you have to realize that that can easily make us blind to the reality of the spiritual battle going on around us. This is not peacetime in this war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Paul says to us, and I'll read you a very familiar passage, Ephesians 6, beginning of verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's not being metaphorical there. He's talking about real spiritual beings. He's talking about real spiritual battles. And so, watch out. Watch out for the danger of loving your life of physical, material, comfort, and ease to the point that you lose sight of your mission. Paul goes on in verse 4 to say, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now we have to think about it. Paul says, think about this. Contemplate it. Meditate on this. What does it mean to get entangled in civilian pursuits. He means the things of this fallen world, life in this fallen world. I don't think he entirely, I don't think he necessarily means only sinful activities in this world. I think he's just talking about getting so caught up in the affairs of this world that you lose your way in the battle. He's not forbidding us to participate in what some would call secular activities. He's not forbidding us to to build a home and to have a family and to enjoy sports and to enjoy the arts and into entertainment, to, to go to a job and build a career. He's not forbidding us from doing any of those things. You could, in a sense, call those civilian affairs because everyone participates in them. But do not get entangled in them. Do not get entangled in the affairs of this world to the point where you lose sight of who you are and why you're here. Many Christians have given up on the mission because they've gotten caught up in the loves of the flesh and the pursuits of this fallen world. Pursuing reputation, pursuing power, pursuing sex, pursuing 
popularity, pursuing sports, whatever it may be, and we become entangled in them. What is entangling you today? What is keeping you from fighting the good fight? Things that you've been able to justify because maybe this is a good thing that many other Christians are involved in. But maybe they're not entangled by it, but you are. We need to have a soldier's view of living in this world. Secondly, we need an athlete's view of God's law. He says in verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. What is your attitude towards the law of God? He's obviously referring to God's rules, God's law, God's word, God's will as it's revealed in his written word. What is your attitude towards the law of God? Paul here is emphasizing that we need to have a humble, submissive attitude towards God's will. No matter how gifted the athlete is, if he refuses to follow his coach's rules, his team's rules, and the rules of the league, of the sport that he's playing, if he does not play by the rules, he will be rendered ineffective and disqualified. That's just a truth of life, and we've seen it played out over and over again. We have a long history of athletes being sidelined because they wouldn't stay within the rules. One of my favorite baseball players is Starling Marte, outfielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Had to sit out half of last season, not this past season, but the year before. Had to sit out half of it because he didn't follow the rules regarding taking steroids. And he was one of only, you know, of, of dozens upon dozens upon dozens of baseball players that have been sidelined by steroids, not keeping the rules. Pete Rose would be in the Hall of Fame today and he'd be one of the most recognized and most uh, lauded of all the Hall of Fame athletes in baseball if he had been able to keep the rules regarding gambling. I think of the 2013 Louisville University basketball team that won a national championship but had it taken away because they played with disqualified players. You've got to keep the rules. It's self-discipline that he's talking about. Your attitude towards God's will as it's revealed in the word of God, that's what discipline is. Living your life according to God's rules. Being self-controlled means living your life according to God's rules. Don't expect to be effective in your mission if you're not willing to abide by God's rules. And Paul talks about, he uses this, this illustration, and Paul was a sports fan. Nothing wrong with being a sports fan. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I discipline my body and kept, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. To stay on mission in discipling others, we need to have the right attitude towards God's will as it's revealed in God's rules which are given in his word. Are you being sidelined in your mission because you are living outside the rules of God's word? It's a question to ask yourself this morning. Now I have to point this out, I'm not talking about work salvation here. You only get in the race by grace. You only get in the race of the athlete that Paul is talking about if Christ chooses you 
dies for you on the cross, sheds his blood so that your sin can be totally forgiven, gives you the gift of his righteousness by faith, that puts you in the race. Only his work can put you in the race to run for the Lord. But once you're in the race, the word of God becomes the rules by which you run well, by which you run effectively. And the beautiful thing is, is not only is it grace that gets you into the race, but it's grace that gives you the strength to run the race, and it is grace that teaches you the rules, and it is grace that keeps you running by the rules. And so what you need to run well is grace in order to keep God's law. And the result of that is, is that your attitude towards the law, whereas in our old nature we hated the law, we hated, we were like the toddler, when you tell him not to step over the line, that's the first thing he does, that was our nature, was to break the rules. Now by grace he has changed your nature, is slowly transforming your nature, so that now you can love the law. Because you understand that the law is the way in which you run well. That your gifts can be used to the best of their purposes and where you can have the most effectiveness. It's the attitude of Psalm 119, beginning in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. It is ever with me. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. By grace, we learn to love the law. We need an athlete's view of God's law. Thirdly and finally, we need a farmer's view of our reward. Paul gives this illustration in verse 6. He says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Those who study history tell us that about 90% of people in Roman culture and Ephesians culture in that day would have been farming to one degree or another, 90%. I think I'd be surprised if we have 10% in the room that do farming to any significant. So it's, hard, it's not as easy to relate, but to the people that Paul's writing to and to the people that Timothy ministered to, this is a huge part of life. They understood what it was to be a farmer. They understand that, that hard work and working towards an unseen reward, a reward that is far off, delayed gratification. They understood the concept if you're involved in farming. Farmers fertilize the field, they plow the field, they plant their seeds, they water the ground, they pull the weeds, they bring in the harvest. From the time where they start fertilizing and plowing the field to the time where they're eating the food on their table, it's a long period and they're not able to see the reward for a long time. It's a long time of waiting and working and praying, and really that's what ministry is. A long time of waiting and working and praying, trusting that the Lord will bring the growth. This is foreign to us. We don't live that way. We need to think about this because it's so foreign to our experience. We live in an age of instant gratification. If I want something, I pray to Alexa. And two hours later, a box shows up from Amazon on my doorstep. That's how we live, more so every day. We need to look at a farmer and understand that the work of the kingdom is not like that. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You need to work at the discipline of being patient as you do the work of the kingdom, as you pursue the mission that you've been given. Because discipleship work is not for those who live by immediate gratification. It doesn't work that way most of the time. Rarely do you share a truth with another sinner like yourself and have their lives immediately changed. It happens once in a while by God's grace. And if you've ever experienced that, it's wonderful. But don't count on that because that's not normally how it happens. It's slow, hard work, plowing, sowing, watering, weeding, waiting, and praying for God to give the growth. There's a lot of stories like this in the mission field, but I just came across one I hadn't read before just a few days ago. It's about a missionary named Dr. William Leslie, and you probably never heard of him. He, in 1912, responded to a call to be a missionary in the Congo, in the middle of Africa, in, the, in some of the most uh, unreachable jungles of Africa. He went in as a, as, a, as, a, as a medical missionary, and he served the people, cared for the people, taught the people about the Bible, preached the gospel, did this for 17 years, and saw no measurable impact to his ministry. And he came home thoroughly discouraged and died nine, year late, nine years later after he came home. He experienced ministry burnout, no doubt about it because he felt like his life had made no difference. What's interesting is in 2010, they sent a group of missionaries into those same dark jungles, expecting to find an unreached people group. And what they found was a church planting movement. They found eight villages, each of them had a church. One of the villages had a church that held a thousand people. And the gospel was being preached and people were believing, and the church was the center of the life in these villages. And the, and the missionaries were shocked. They had expected to find no belief, and they found Christian villages. And so they asked, how did you learn this? Who told you about this? And they said, well, all we know about him is his name was Dr. Leslie, and they, we think he was a Baptist. <laughs> and so, so this, these missionaries came back to the country and they started Googling and you know, doing their research and they found out there was this Dr. Leslie, Dr. William Leslie, who thought that his whole life was a waste and they had accomplished nothing. Just a, a vivid illustration of what Paul is saying here. Paul says it differently, using the same thing in different words in 1 Corinthians 3 where he says, so neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. But, he says, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. You have to learn to see, look for, and rejoice in the fruit of discipling others, which only comes slowly and sometimes doesn't even come in your lifetime. If you're ever going to truly enjoy and ministry and avoid burnout, in James chapter 1, verse 25, it says, He who does God's will is blessed in his doing. I love that phrase. He who does God's will is blessed in his doing. He who follows God's mission, who seeks to do God's will in terms of the mission that we've been given to disciple others, is blessed in the doing of it. 
We believe that by faith. Stated in other words, in 3 John chapter 4, it says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. If you've ever shared the word of God with another person, whether through evangelism or teaching Sunday school or leading a Bible study or just sharing a, a, a broken, with a broken person over a cup of coffee, if you've ever shared the word of God with someone and they took that truth and it transformed their life by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know the joy that John is talking about. I have no greater joy in my life than seeing my spiritual children, people that I've influenced with the word of God, walk in the ways of truth. That's what gets us up in the morning, is to experience that joy. Let me read to you again verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Take these metaphors home with you. You need a soldier's commitment. You need an athlete's submission to God's rules. And you need a farmer's view of your reward in order to avoid ministry burnout and to be effective in your mission. Take these images home with you and think on these things and allow the Lord to help you to apply it to your own life. How are you entangled? How have you experienced mission creep in your life? How have you sought the joys of this world instead of the joys of the kingdom? How have you been blind to the spiritual battles going on around you? But I don't want to conclude without pointing out to your attention the first verse that I skipped. Verse 1 is the most important verse in the entire passage, and I'm just going to touch on it at the end here. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If you are discouraged, if you are tired, if you are weary, if you're wanting to give up, you need to look outside of yourselves to get the strength to do what you need to do. That grace has to come from outside of yourself. The world will tell you to look within yourself. The scriptures will tell you to look outside of yourself. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ because he promises grace to those who will ask him for it. You will fail in this mission. You have failed maybe even already today. You will fail the rest of the day. You'll fail the rest of this week and the weeks to come. But grace is always available. You can wake up every morning with a clean slate, forgiven for your failures, forgiven for your worldliness, forgiven for your sin, and asking the Lord to renew you in the mission that he's called you to pursue. That's grace. Grace is given through this meal. Spiritual strength is promised to those who receive this meal by faith. Come to the table and be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be in the word and prayer every day. You desperately need it to stay true to the mission and to have the energy and the strength to do it. This is the will of God. This is the privilege that we have as his people in this world. Let's pray in Christ's name. Father, we come to you in Christ and we ask for the grace that you have promised. In Christ, we look to you to renew us in the forgiveness that's available because of the cross of Christ. We ask you to renew us in energy, in strength, in vision, in enthusiasm for the work that is set before us. Father, we are tired, we are weary, we've lost our way. But Lord, your grace is sufficient. Work in us and through us to bring your word to those who need it. And may we find our greatest joy in being a part of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.